This was supposed to come to you guys last week after me and my family had taken in a Tennessee Smokies baseball game, hung out all week down in Pigeon Forge and Gatlinburg. Uh, for the Tennessee Smokies, if you don't know, that's the Chicago Cubs. Yes, the Cubbies, their double-A team, beautiful stadium, uh, one to check out, their top prospect, Pete Crow Armstrong, and what I did see and what we did see was the Mississippi Braves no-hit Pete Crow Armstrong and the Tennessee Smokies for over six innings would have been uh, the first no-hitter that these eyes have ever seen, uh, minor or major league. I know with me being as old as I am, it's maybe kind of hard to believe, but have never seen uh, a no-hitter on TV or in person the whole way through, have always you know caught them at the end. But while I was down there, I, I also had sent out a tweet that had gotten some feedback from some guys that I have a lot of respect for. Uh, James Fox, he's from Future Socks. If anybody watched their uh, draft night spectacular, they had it on YouTube. I, I was on there. Uh, but as my, my wife and, and brother-in-law and friends and stuff, being huge Chicago White Sox fan, it's, it's a team that I also follow you know pretty closely so if anybody's interested in the chicago white Sox farm system james does an absolutely amazing job over there also had some conversations uh with twitter friend uh, i've only met him once in person ethan houlihan uh working out basically a tweet that jim callis had sent out and i kind of had a reaction to it and it was about the pirates you know, they're them not using their entire draft pool of money. Um, they had, I think it was, it was $16,185,700 to use. Uh, they had $312,400 remaining from that regular pool. But for people that don't uh, follow the draft as much, you'll hear talk about this 5% overpool um, that you can basically use without any penalty. Um, if you go over that, then that's when you know loss of draft picks and different stuff comes in. Um, I had sent out a tweet. Uh, the one part, the first part was definitely like a, a little bit off base. I had used uh, Mitch Jeb's uh signing under slot as as a possible reason as to why you know there was that remaining and and the whole time I was speaking about just that 312 um if you want to use that over slot I mean I think that you know teams like the Pittsburgh Pirates should definitely take advantage of that as much as possible um but I was more towards the point of that and and also towards the point of you know, spending that over slot and it's not just giving away the money because I mean, everybody would want to give away Bob Nutting's money, but more in trying to entice players. So the first part was, you know, Mitch Jeb signed for under slot, even the night of the draft, it was pretty much known um, how much he was going to sign for uh, the other players that I kind of spoke about. And it was Xander Meath who is going to be called Muth by Pirates fans into eternity, and it's going to drive me absolutely nuts. Uh, but Xander Meath, uh, he 
you know, was one of the players that signed uh, Overslot. Um, he went for $671,800 Overslot. Um, he signed for, I believe it was about $1.8 million. And I had, you know, heard through some rumblings and different stuff that, you know, he was going to sign for between $1.8 um, and $2 million. So that could have been... Um, upwards of $200,000 of that $312,400. Uh, the other one was Christian Curtis. Christian Curtis, uh, he fell into that, you know, the, after, you know, the, the 10th round where it's usually like, you know, a, around 150,000. There's not really a, a slot value assigned to that, but he went for 347,500 over top of that and and i did you know kind of think that maybe he could have gotten you know a a little bit more than that uh just because that's kind of those are two discussions that went on um a, a little bit longer but my main point was of uh of daniel cuvet daniel cuvet they took him in the 17th round with pick number 497 he was listed as 223 according to mlb.com uh, had a, a serious commitment to the University of Miami, thought they might be able to use, you know, a decent amount of that. They used um, in previous years, and I'm going to talk about this, and I've talked about this before, which was Braylon Bishop, which he got about 118700 you know, more than the, you know, 150 that is kind of like maybe like the guidelines for rounds 10 through 20. So for that to kind of happen, you know, I definitely thought that that would make up that $300,000 difference. And like I said, I did have some good discussions with, with James and with Ethan and kind of like maybe, you know, came to, to a different conclusion as far as, you know, kind of what happened with that. And, you know, thinking that, you know, the Pirates try to do what they had done in previous drafts. And what they try to do is, you know, once a player starts to quote unquote fall, um, some of the explanation for that fall could be that the player, you know, is looking for a, a higher slot to to keep them away from their commitment. And even though, you know, they may be ranked higher with in the, you know, the fan graphs, the MLB pipeline, the, the baseball America rankings that they would end up, you know, being drafted much later on. Uh, we did see that this player was drafted. He was drafted by the St. Louis Cardinals in the 20th round at pick number 605. He was 42nd, according to MLB Pipeline, and that is Cameron Johnson from IMG Academy in Florida. I believe he had pitched in Maryland before that and went to IMG for his senior season. I, I saw him as a possible guy that, you know, maybe at some point in time the Pirates had, you know, tried to use some of that 5%, some of that slot that was left to be able to sign him. Um, what ended up being left is, is kind of the thing that people are, are focusing a lot on, and that is the $1,121,685 that the Pirates had left uh, to, you know, use of that 5% overage pool. 
And, you know, that possibly uh, would be looking at a player that that could kind of fit into, you know, that that 42 range. And I looked at, you know, what would be the slot value for the 42nd player? Um, that would be around two million uh, forty five thousand dollars. So if you look how much the Pirates had, you know, total remaining that one point, you know, two one million dollars, um, if they would, you know, offer him, you know, that much amount of money, I don't know if that would have been enough um, to entice him. So what this kind of seems like is that they tried to use a, you know, a, a thing that they had used in the past, a strategy uh, that they had used in the past to bring those players uh, with the best example, you know, being in 2021 where their draft pool was 14,394,000. Um, and they actually only had uh, $2,500 of that 5% overage remaining. So they actually spent over their draft pool by 576000 um, That's when Henry Davis went under slot by almost uh, $2 million. Uh, signed Anthony Solomedo to 798000 over slot. Lonnie White Jr. Uh, to almost 450000 over slot. Bubba Chandler to $2.1 million over slot. Um, so it kind of seemed like they were trying to do, you know, something like that. But the, the other thing that I was thinking of is, you know, looking back to Ben Charrington's, you know, four drafts so far here uh, as GM of the Pittsburgh Pirates and, and to see, you know, what, you know, there may have been a time where they didn't actually, you know, use their entire pool, didn't go for the over slot. And I know that the 2020 draft was absolutely just an, a strange draft, you know, to begin with. Um, but they actually had $87,100 remaining. And in their over 5% over pool, they had 644825 Um So they didn't use the full amount of money and they did not use the over slot. Like I mentioned in 2021, uh, they, you know, spent over by 576000 They only had 2500 of that 5% remaining. But even in a draft like, like last year, they did use, you know, all of their money. They went over slot for Tamar Johnson, over slot uh, for Michael Kennedy. They used all of the money, but they still had $687,065 remaining in that 5% over slot. And something that, that even had slipped my mind until I looked back on it and it kind of like refreshed my memory is that in the 19th round with pick 560, uh, we drafted, you know, we as in the Pirates, drafted Yoho Tejada, the right-handed pitcher from North Boward Prep, uh, 217th ranked prospect by MLB.com and, and was unable to sign him. So, I mean, a lot of these times when you have these prep players, I mean, it's definitely taking a huge risk or these high school players, it's taking that huge risk. So, yeah, I the more I looked at it, like when I first reacted to it, I'm like, oh, I'm not that annoyed. Um, but it, it is kind of frustrating that you left what could have been, I mean, at least 312000 but it probably more of that, you know, on the table by not being able to sign a cuvee and by not being able to get one of those 
other players to agree to kind of come to your team by offering them, you know, what would be slot value for where their ranking would be, or maybe even a little bit over that to get them to come. So that that is definitely, you know, a little bit disappointing, but I wanted to kind of give a guess as to, you know, maybe who um, they try to do that with, and, and it wouldn't really, you know, work out so well. Um, another thing, that I started seeing a lot of while I was down there. Had a lot of time to think. I mean, not really. We were moving and doing stuff all the time because there's a ton of stuff down uh, to do down in Gatlinburg to do in Pigeon Forge. Um, was seeing, you know, the farm system rankings, number one by Fangraphs, you know, kind of all over the place. And, I mean, Fangraphs, it's, it's not that, you know, I don't trust their rankings, but – for me, the biggest thing was that I don't ever remember the Pirates farm system being ranked poorly, you know, by Fangraphs. And and I was kind of right on that to a degree. Um, Fangraphs kind of does this ranking where, you know, each player value, the future value of a player, you know, from 65, 60, 55, uh, the, the, you know, the 40, 40 plus, uh, whatever it would be. I mean, gets a certain dollar number um, assigned to it. And at that point in time, then, you know, your entire farm system based on how many of those you have. And a lot of times people have a lot of like 35, 30 future value players uh, that kind of like start to, you know, build up. So when I've heard like the Pirates have had depth, but they don't have a lot of those like higher ranked guys to, to kind of put their system over the top. So I just want to look back like to 2019 uh, prior to when Ben Charrington took over, uh, this would have been the last update that was done under the Neil Huntington era. Uh, the number one farm system in baseball was the Tampa Bay Rays. No surprise there. Valued at $420 million. Um, an average value of $7.1 million per player. And the Pirates that year were actually ranked in the top 10. They were ranked at number nine, a value of $219 million, with an average value of 5.3. So moving on to 2020, uh, after you know Ben Sherrington had the ability to trade Starling Marte to participate in his first draft, uh, the Tampa Bay Rays were number one yet again. They were $489 million. Uh, at an $8.9 million average per player. The Pirates jumped the whole way up to fourth at $295 million, an average of $6.4 per player you know, within their farm system. Uh, moving on to 2021, the number one spot is taken by the Baltimore Orioles. Really no surprise there as well. There's been a lot of big talk about how good their farm system is. Uh, coming in at $368 million, a $7.8 million average. And your Pittsburgh Pirates coming in at number two at $357 million. 5.9 on the average there. So that's, you know pretty exciting uh, and then for the next year the Orioles keep it they're they're you know the money value of the team according to Fangraphs does not go down that much within the farm system from 368 million to 364 million which works out to be about 7.3 you know million dollars in the average 
and the Pirates drop a little bit. They drop down to number three. They drop by about eleven million dollars, which you know is kind of inconsequential. Uh, but that's you know three hundred and forty-six million dollars, uh, five point five on average. And of course, now this year with the update, Pirates are number one. And something that I kind of kind of caught my eye is that the value of the system overall actually went down. Um, it's at 313 million. So if you look back to when, in 2021, uh, when the Pirates were in second place behind the Orioles, they were at 357 million. When they were in third place last year, they were at 346 million. Um, the average did go up to around 6.8 million. Um, but just seeing that there is kind of like less value in everybody's farm systems. And especially when you see the number two team um, is, you know, the Chicago Cubs team. We already mentioned, cause I went to see their double a team play. Uh, the Cubbies are coming in around 252 million at a 4.7 average, which kind of works out to where the pirates were. I uh, almost, I mean, just like a little bit less average wise, more money wise as the ninth ranked team. So, I mean, I'm looking at the Tampa Bay Rays when they were in 2019 at 420 million, uh, 2020 at 489 million, and the Pirates are ranked number one at 313 million. So yeah, I mean, they kind of do have, you know, possibly the the best farm system, you know, according to FanGraphs. But I also looked at, you know, Henry Davis going to be coming off the list. Quinn Priest are going to be coming off the list. Andy Rodriguez eventually coming off the list um, and, and those types of players. And even like, you know, probably somebody that was like maybe a little bit lower valued in a, in a Jared Triolo coming off the list. So I'm just, I mean, I know it's, it's kind of like a good thing, but a lot of people would just say pirate system, you know, farm system ranked number one and don't really look into, you know, what that actually means value wise. And yes, you know, it, it's, you know, 6.8 average is the top that it's been um, even when they were, you know, like two or three, but it's not much higher than when the Pirates were number four in 2020. So it's just kind of like a look to see, you know, has this system improved? I believe the system continues to get deeper and deeper. Um, but aside from, you know, Paul Skeens at this point in time, of the players are going to be graduating in different stuff. I know that, you know, Jared Jones is starting to come on a little bit more coming into the top 100 in, in certain circles, you know, Anthony Solomito getting, you know, conversations about that. So it could be that it could kind of balance it out a little bit more, but to me, it just kind of seems like more of like, you know, what we talked about, Chris and myself talked about on this most recent episode was just, you know, the Florida Complex League and like how now we have, you know, and, and within the Florida Complex League and the DSL, we have like three of the top like 21 ranked prospects and, and some pretty big signings, you know, from that draft class. But the guys are so far away. It's it's really of, you know, what we're seeing now is just having somewhat of a just a, an impact and, and you know, just one of those players on this team that is just, you know, that MVP caliber uh, type player uh, with Brian Reynolds having a, a down year. We haven't gotten to see O'Neill Cruz, 
but you know other than you know Paul Skeens as of right now I mean these numbers can obviously change the, the future value of, of a player could go up so they could go into that level but not seeing that um, as much and just kind of seeing that you know over the past few years the value by Fangrass has dropped but not as much as some other ball clubs so then all of a sudden it, are we number one you know, are the Pirates number one by default? And and that's just something I, I've kind of been thinking of, which led me to look at, there was a comment my, made by, you know, someone who is, you know, a, a journalist within uh, the Pittsburgh Pirates realm. I'm not a journalist. I am a blog blogger and a podcaster. I don't even call myself a writer. I mean, some people that are on these blogging sites will say I'm a writer, you know, for said blogging site or whatever. To me, you're a blogger. I mean, yes, you are writing, um, but you know, even if you're being paid minuscule by the by the views or what whatever it may be, I've I've done that before as well. But I've never considered myself an actual writer. I mean, that's kind of reserved for you know the beat writers, the the, the actual journalists that, that are doing this. But it was a comment that was made, and I, I don't know if it was like just out of frustration or or different stuff. I started talking about the development um, and and how that works like throughout the system, and saying that you know for the past four years we've had the same developmental staff, you know player development staff. Uh, up and down throughout the system and and whereas you know this is you know the fourth year under ben sherrington fourth year with with oscar marine fourth year uh with Derek shelton that you know this isn't really the fourth year of development up and down through the system so they're saying like you know our development isn't working the minor league system and, and it got me thinking because i know that everybody knows this and still, you know, shouldn't have to be reminded of this is that, you know, in 2020, there was no development in the minor league systems. There was an alternative site out in Altoona where they didn't even have enough players to field teams, to field games. So it wasn't like, you know, you had like the Pirate City Complex moved up and you could have your A team versus your B team and have pitchers get their reps and stuff. No, I mean, if anybody wants to go back and look, I mean, there were, you know, coaches playing left field, playing shortstop, playing third base, playing first base, uh, catch whatever it may be to try to fill out those teams. So like 90, 95% of the minor league uh, players within the Pirates organization and with pretty much any organization had, had no development. So, to say that, you know, this is four year of minor league development is kind of just, it's, it's not true. It's just absolutely not true. And then even like in 2021, I mean, a lot of people would kind of come in and say, just come in and clean house. Cause you know, this team was just absolutely terrible. And the development system was absolutely terrible. But I mean, Chris and I have talked about this before that, you know, there weren't, you know, across the board decisions made even at the major league level there were some coaches that were allowed to stay there was some 
you know, within the scouting department, there was some, you know, and the scouting department pretty much is a bad example, just because I'm pretty sure almost everybody that was in the scouting department is still within the scouting department. But looking to see, like, is this the issue? Is development the issue? Is scouting the issue? And not, you know, making those hasty decisions. So 2021 to me was almost an observation year to kind of see what works, what doesn't. They did introduce, you know, some some new technology that hadn't been used before. The Rapsodo machines, the high-speed cameras uh, for, you know, the batters and the pitchers to see, like, technique, to see, you know, to work on launch angle, to work on timing, to work on all kinds of different stuff. But it really wasn't until before the 2022 season um, in minor in the minor leagues that there was a lot of changes and a lot of additions made um, concerning player development. So that's why I can't say that it's been four years for this entire developmental staff when most of these guys haven't even been here for two full years. Uh, prior to the 2022 season, they brought in Dewey Robinson, the Rays uh, pitching guru. Uh, they gave a promotion to Julio Sepulveda and made her him the coordinator of players and coaching development. Crab was a former assistant hitting coach for the Rangers, and he was brought in to be a coach, now a coach uh, within the uh, – he is the Altoona uh, Curves head coach. And he was kind of like a, a, a guru within like the, the hitting world. Um, Eric Munson, who is Indianapolis's hitting coach, uh, he had been with the Gold Standard Athletics, which is when everybody talks about like the drive lines and, and the, tre- the threads and, and treads or whatever it may be of, of all these like, you know, specialized places. Well, that's kind of where he came from. He had been there for eight years. And so they thought outside the box and brought him in as the Indians uh, hitting coach. Um, You had Quentin Brown brought in as the complex hitting coach down there uh, in Pirate City. And the biggest thing is that they brought in an integrated baseball performance coach at each level. So that was just introduced within these past two years. And something that I've mentioned, you know, a, a few times here is that John Baker, who's pretty much like I call him the GM of the minor leagues, uh, but he calls himself he is the uh, <laughs> he is the coordinator of coaching and player development. He was former you know mental health skills coach uh, within the Chicago Cubs organization. Brought in Chad Noble, who had been the Cubs bullpen catcher, and had him be. be a roving catching instructor throughout the minor leagues because they thought that was something that they needed. And the other thing is that even this year, they, they made an adjustment. Before the 2023 season, Mike Gonzalez, a guy that a lot of people have probably seen but didn't know who he was, he was uh, the Pirates' major league uh, interpreter. Um, he went down and he got a new position as the mental health skills coach in Pirate City because of all of the Latin speaking players and players, you know, that were going to be coming to the FCL to try to, you know, help integrate and to help, you know, I guess, get them adjusted um, to, to being stateside because that's something that a lot of, you know, people have talked about through the years has been very difficult 
uh, to deal with. So for somebody to come in and say like, this is entirely for the past four years, the same developmental staff that we, it's almost like needing to clean house again. Like to me, like at least, you know, be truthful in saying like, it's saying like, okay, if you don't like, if you don't like Oscar Marine, you don't like Andy Haynes, you don't like Derek Shelton, you don't like Ben Sherrington. But I mean, these other guys, this is only the second year um, they've been put in place there. And I mean, we'd have to let that go for a couple of years within the minor league system to actually see that it's working. Um, I already see examples on the pitching side, you know, with Jared Jones, you know, jumping a level, almost every year and then also being moved up to Indianapolis so quickly. Um, Anthony Solomito, I mean, Thomas Harrington, there's, there's some steps that have been taken. So I just can't make that blanket statement across the board and, and also just want you guys to have all the facts. A pitcher of beer, a pitcher of beer, let's order another pitcher of beer. That pitcher of beer should come over here. I of course, while I was down there in Pigeon Forge in Gatlinburg, I was trying some beers out, guys. And for this one, I mean, I don't think I'm going to have to drink beer for at least the next month or so, maybe even two months while I'm doing this show, because I I test tasted a, a, a lot of great beers while I was down there. So we're going to go with the beers that I drank at the Smokies game. Three of them from one brewery and one from a brewery that I've had before. The first one that I'm going to go with that I've had before, um, I've had it from the brewery. I did not have this exact beer. Um, I've had Wicked Weed Brewing before, Asheville, North Carolina. I tried their Coastal IPA. It's a hazy coming in at 6.3%. Just going to let you guys know, this was the best beer I had the entire time at that game. Coming in at a 450, adjusted down to 400. And these next three beers, I mean, this is definitely a great Southern brewery company name. Yeehaw Brewing, I tried their IPA, coming in at 6.7%. Gave that one a 425, knock it down to 375. I tried their Kolsch. The Kolsch is a 4.7%. Gave that one a 400. Knock it down to 350. And my wife's favorite beer while we were down there was their Cerveza. Coming in at 4.8%. She made me go get a six-pack to bring back home with us. That one coming in at 4350 And hopefully, guys, I'll be back next week. I... Uh, to be talking about some more of these beers, some other stuff within the Pirates minor league system. But until next time, let's go Indians. Let's go Curve. Let's go Hoppers. Let's go Marauders. Let's go FCL and DSL Pirates. <laughs>